Welcome to the third entry in the Greatest Science Fiction Films Tournament series of podcasts focused on horror and Halloween movies. Alexander Case and I are back, and this week we are discussing the 1931 classic Frankenstein. So, welcome back, Alex. Glad to be here. So this is one that has always been a big film for me. My entire life, I've been a detail-oriented geek and a morning person. Frankenstein is the first horror movie I ever saw. And a lot of that, as I said, I'm a detail-oriented geek. I saw in the TV guide that Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and the Invisible Man and the Creature from the Black Lagoon were all scheduled to be airing at about 1 a.m. on a local TV station every night for a week before Halloween when I was in grade 1. And I asked my mother if... I could watch those. The response I got was, you cannot watch movies when they're on that late. I chose to take that literally. I'm pretty sure their intent was, if movies are being scheduled that late, they're not appropriate for you to watch. I took it literally saying, well, I can't watch them when they're on that late, but I'll watch them another time. So I set the beta, I recorded them every night, and I watched those classic universal horror movies before school the next day, before anyone else woke up every time. (laughs) So Frankenstein was the first horror movie I ever saw. Uh... I didn't actually see Frankenstein until I was in high school. I think I was five years old when I first saw the Universal Horror movies, and I think I was six years old when I first saw most of the James Bond movies, the same way. Anyway, here we're at Frankenstein, and I said at the tail end of the last podcast that this was a huge part of forming the horror genre. Uh, The first proper horror film, I'd say, is The Cabin of Dr. Caligari from 1920. But even that kind of pulls its punches when they... You give it the framing story that says, well, this whole thing could just be this dream from the psycho at the mental hospital. Instead of just leaving it as is, as though it had actually happened. And that was one of the first German Expressionist films, too. And the German Expressionist trends went through the Gollum, through Waxworks, through Nosferatu. And there was a lot of that. But bringing horror to the North American masses and putting in a strong story structure in addition to the strong visuals is really a universal invention with the universal horror movies, probably starting properly with Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923 and following it up with Phantom of the Opera in 1925, both starring Lon Chaney. Frankenstein is one of those main ones, and it it took a bit to get it going. Uh, It's directed by James Whale, who had directed a lot of successful pictures for Universal and for other studios, but they were mostly war pictures. So they gave him a list of properties they had the rights to and let him choose his next project. He chose Frankenstein so that he could be known for something other than war movies. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone today who recognizes the name James Whale and does not associate it with his horror work and associates it with the war movies instead. They also ended up recasting the monster. The studio's original choice was Bela Lugosi. Because even though Todd Browning originally fought against hiring Lugosi as Dracula, because he was the stage actor, uh, when they did eventually work to get him in the films, he won over the studios and Todd Browning. And they offered him the role of Frankenstein's monster, as well as the role of Dr. Frankenstein. He turned them down for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that he wanted control of his own makeup, and they weren't happy with the screen tests. And the other one is that when he was moved from the role of Dr. Frankenstein into that of the monster, 
it was basically a non-speaking part, and he was not interested in taking any roles where you could not hear his magnificent voice. So Boris Karloff was a last-minute replacement. He was a working actor, but not really a name actor. James Whale saw him at the Universal Studios confectionery. You know, basically, the concession stand noticed that, first of all, the guy's huge. Second, he has somewhat sallow cheeks, which they sort of overemphasized in this film. And thirdly, his arms were two different lengths. There's about a two-inch difference between them. And we looked at him and thought, that's my monster, and passed him a note saying, hey, we're doing Frankenstein, I want you to play the monster, come in for a screen test. So that's how, basically how he landed in the role. That's and that's a pretty good way to get the job. It is. Um, and he was all for it, even, you know, suggesting things. Because at this time, they didn't really have makeup artists. A lot of the artists did their own makeup, especially Lon Chaney, who was known at the time as the Man of a Thousand Faces. Uh, so Pierce was in. I can't believe I'm blanking it on Pierce's first name, whether it was Jack or Jason, on the makeup. It was Jack Pierce was involved in the makeup. But again, Karloff was helping, so when they were trying to get this asymmetry, trying to get this hodgepodge monster look, it was actually Boris Karloff's idea to remove his bridge work while filming, which is why his right cheek seems to be concave. It's because he actually took the, the dental work out, so now there's nothing supporting it, and the cheek falls in naturally. Uh, and this is also where you accidentally get this whole notion of the monster being green-skinned. It was always a gray pallor. It was supposed to be a gray pallor. Uh, but in the black and white films, Jack Pierce ran through a few different colors of makeup to try and get the right tone of gray that he wanted. And the makeup he chose that gave the right tone of gray in black and white film just happened to be green. So that's the way he was painted by the people doing the posters who were invited to the set to see it. And this was the first popularization of the visual look for Frankenstein. So... That's sort of the, the look that held. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the, one of the interesting things about black and white film, as far as for, for how they got the shades of gray they needed, is oftentimes you get some really bizarre colors. Um, if, if you want to get a good look at this, um, as far as for how different colors, the normal colors, can translate to completely different colors in black and white, the... H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society did a silent film version of The Call of Cthulhu in black and white, and they did a full documentary feature on the DVD in the process, and you get to see some of their color tests, uh, both in color and in uh, black and white, for the uh, sets in the film. And so you kind of see how, for example, there's a scene in a jungle um, in, in the swamps of Louisiana from the story, and to get the right color of shades of gray for the fol for the foliage, they had to do some colors which do not appear in nature in foliage. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm sure that was something that they did all the time, and part of it was the, the limited materials they had on hand, so they could reuse them. When they first started doing the, the Adventures of Superman, even that TV series starring George Reeves, the actual suit he wore for the black and white years wasn't 
red, yellow, and blue. It was brown, green, and some other shade I don't remember. Because that gave the right levels of contrast on black and white film. But again, that's getting a little bit off topic. So the film itself is based on Mary Wollstonecraft's Shelley's story, which is also based on John Balderston's composition. So basically, Balderston, Percy Shelley, and Percy Shelley's fiance Mary Wollstonecraft were essentially shut in one night because of intense weather. They decided to have a contest telling horror stories. Ballerston came up with a quick little poem about a monster, and Mary Shelley picked up on that and did the full backstory and wrote it out as the novel, which is, you know, Frankenstein of the postmodern Prometheus. That was later adapted into a play by Peggy Webling, and it was a very different play. So when Garrett Ford and Francis Edward Ferreira did the screenplay, they brought elements from both those together. So this movie actually bears relatively little resemblance to the novel, uh, to the point of changing character names, because they felt North American audiences coming in after World War I would not be sympathetic with a lead named Victor. So instead of having Victor Frankenstein and Henry Clovel, the doctor is now Henry Frankenstein, and his friend is Victor Moritz. So they did, you know, they, they swapped the first names there. Uh, in the novel, Frankenstein basically animated dead tissue with no indication of how, no mention of electricity, any of that. He, as he was narrating it, and you're basically reading his diary in the novel, he just flat out says he's refusing to give any details of any kind because he doesn't want anyone to make the horrible mistakes he's made. And that's sort of, Mary Shelley's way of writing around that particular problem. She doesn't have to give any indication of how he's bringing life into dead matter, only that he figured it out, and he's not telling. And he creates the monster essentially in his dorm room. And in the novel, the monster is very sympathetic. hes It's basically a story about racism. and He's ostracized based on his looks. And when he encounters blind people, they're quite happy to work with them. The story takes place over the span of several years. And it's more Victor Frankenstein's treatment of him that is condemned than the monster himself. So Victor Frankenstein was not intended to be the sympathetic character. The monster was. Okay. In a novel, I feel that works very well. Agreed. Also in the novel, um, the monster is not the scarred... Um, the sort of horrifically scarred abomination that we normally associate with um, the character from the motion picture, the monster is basically designed to be a perfect specimen in every way, both mentally and physically. Um, however, because the film, it tends to be the other way around, the other way around, but tends to be mentally defective and physically um, scarred and, hor and horrific to look upon. And, yeah. Um, to the point where, for the first two movies, the monster does not speak. Uh, and the iconic portrayals of the monster have basically the monster expressing itself in the form of grunts, in the form of grunts and groans. Yeah, it's very inarticulate. Uh, 
in this movie they make a point of saying it's patchwork and sewn together from various dead bodies. So it, it really plays up the evils of trying to play God more in this film. That's definitely a part of a novel. But the novel is sort of the racist message first, and then the don't play God message is a secondary message. Whereas the movie Don't Play God really is the only message. Where Victor has you know, even taken it to the point where they don't want to look like he has reached the level of godhood where he can take inanimate matter and breathe life into it. So they have him create this patchwork monster, including using a criminal's brain, which is used to sort of explain why the monster is so violent and why he attacks. Although there are enough elements of Mary Shelley's monster that even when he does things wrong, such as, you know, he throws the flower heads into the river to watch them float after little Maria shows him how, and then he runs out of things to throw in, except little Maria, so he throws her in and gets confused and panicky when she doesn't float. So that's, you know, it's still a horrific act that he killed Maria, but this monster has no understanding of what he's doing and why that happened that way. So even that, he's simplistic enough that you can still sympathize with him somewhat. Even when he kills Fritz, the last time we see him before the death of Fritz is Fritz torturing him, quite deliberately and quite maliciously. So it could have just been a matter of self-defense. And the thing that's worth mentioning, as you mentioned, Fritz, is in the book, Dr. Frankenstein has no assistant figure. He's, he's doing it all on his own. Um, whereas the film introduced basically the concept of the Igor, though, and as you said, he's called Fritz in this movie instead of Igor. Um, later on, Bella Lugosi would put, would, in, like, House of Frankenstein, I think it is, or Son of Frankenstein, would, pl would play a Igor figure, would play an Igor. Um, and here Fritz is, very, is not very bright, but very malicious, very violent, very and very aggressive. He is the hunchback that the hunchback of Notre Dame was feared to be, and in that story, right, he basically is that misshapen monster. Or hunchback of Notre Dame, people were assuming he was, even though that wasn't anywhere close to the truth. That's that is a large part of what Fritz is here. He is just that little toady. And in fact, I suspect he was influential in the design of Toad from the X-Men. If you go back to when he was just Magneto's little toady, he was hunchbacked, and his initial hair and physical design look a lot like Fritz in this film. It would surprise me if that's accidental. But what we do have in this film is a totally different story, so it's not so much the drama and the tension as we examine the psychology of a broken man and realize through his eyes how he has wronged his own creation. This really is horror. So the monster is less sympathetic. There are sympathetic aspects, but there are still some cases of just wanton destruction, such as the attack on Elizabeth, which has really no purpose. You know, in the book, at least, that was motivated by revenge, and the monster later regretted it. 
you know, there are elements like that. But this one is much more of a straight-up horror movie. And they've changed the locations and compressed the time. So instead of having the span of a few years, we jump in right before the creation of the monster, and the monster is taken care of probably within about a week or so. They're a little vague, but all the major events take place on a couple of days, although there may be some days between them. And also, by the time the, the movie starts, Dr. Frankenstein has already resolved himself to build the monster, whereas in the book, we have sort of the slow burn as Frank as Dr. Frankenstein gets the idea, runs it past some people, they kind of say, hey, you're getting into areas where maybe you shouldn't do this, or just kind of laugh him off, which eventually kind of goads him into doing it to show them. Um, by the start of the movie, Dr. Frankenstein is already basically your full-on mad scientist. And yeah, he's he's within hours of completing this. Yeah, it, it, it's let it's the move the, the movie ends up becoming less about Frankenstein, Doctor Frankenstein's fall, and more about kind of a redemptive arc for him through Elizabeth, through um, through his through Victor Cal- Calvill, um, causing him to basically go and take responsibility for his creation and eventually try and destroy it instead yeah. of him um, trying to destroy his creation pursuing it to the end of the earth and so forth and so on and losing everything yeah, you, in the process yeah even you know he was primarily just one of the villagers who was out there hunting this thing down and he does have a confrontation with the monster but the monster wins that confrontation it's the villagers who burn the windmill down when he's in it. And this is also one of the movies, as I mentioned, it, I think it's formative in the way horror movies are made today. One of the big elements that this drew from is the German expressionist set design. When we recorded the podcast about Alien, that in that one we discussed the set design at great length. Aliens, not so much. There wasn't as much there to add to and to discuss. Here we've got it. Now we've got that final crickety windmill at the top of the hill and the villagers with torches and pitchforks. That's now a pretty standard horror motif, and this is where it started. We've got the interior designs of the castle, which are heavily influenced by German Expressionism, with the very tall ceilings and the skewed walls, particularly in that spiraling staircase set where they come down to the castle's front door. Uh, there's evidence of that as well in the laboratory, which has now been reproduced and extrapolated on in how many movies. The set design here is as iconic as anything else, including this view of the monster, that patchwork beast put together from the dead bodies with the electrodes in his neck that everyone calls bolts, and the, the scars holding his arms together. This is one of the earliest synchronized sound filaments live action, Synchronized Sound had been around in animation for over a decade, and incidentally before Steamboat Willie, the Fleischers got there first with Singamon cartoons. But it had only been around with live-action sync since the late 1920s, and this is 1931, so that's still pretty early on. There were some countries whose film industries hadn't caught up to Synchronized Sound yet, and that's in here. 
unfortunately, the fact that the sound technology is that early does give away the fact that this is a studio film. In some cases, there are scenes that are shot in what is intended to be a large outdoor expanse, and between the creases in the backdrop that's supposed to be the sky and the fact that they're echoing when they speak, that tells you it's inside, some of these give it away. So there are aspects of the film that don't age well, but by and large, it does. And that set design is a huge part of it. And that castle design, the monster design, they have been echoed time and time and time again in the 82 years since this came out. And also, and also, we'll talk. We'll end up talking a little bit more about the um, lab design more. Also, when we get to the Hammer Frankenstein movie at some point in the future, because on the one hand, it, it is narratively somewhat similar to this movie, but in many ways, radically different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll also bring it up more when we get to Young Frankenstein. Because th- this set was so popular, it was still standing as part of the Universal Studios tour when they made Young Frankenstein 40 years later. So some scenes from Young Frankenstein were filmed on these sets. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about those movies when we talk about those movies. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of... I, mean, I really can't stress enough in terms of how... So much of this movie has been, bar- has been borrowed and taken from so many other movies. Actually, to think about it a little further, not just the, the image of the of the angry mob of villagers with pitchforks and the windmill being iconic, but just the angry mob of villagers in your gothic horror movie. I think this is the first film that I know of that has the ang- has a group of ang- an angry mob of villagers pursuing a monster. Um, uh, they did have that earlier, again in Universal films. Um, the big one is probably the end of Phantom of the Opera, where every patron of the Opera House chases the Phantom out before he basically finally gets captured. Uh, I hadn't seen but, the version of Phantom, so... Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's another classic one. There are a few, but again, it's coming out of the Universal ones. And most of those were, you know, that one was a spontaneous group, so they weren't armed. There were no torches, there were no pitchforks. They were just being chased by crowds. Um, and somewhat not quite to the, the level of comedy that you'd get in, say, Cops, the short by Buster Keaton. But, yeah, it's not quite at the horror level here, where you've got the organized mob who are not just reacting to something they've seen and then trying to catch the guy before he gets away. This is the example I'm aware of where they get together and organize and say, okay, this thing is out there somewhere, we don't know where. Let's go get it. Yeah. So this is the first really organized and planned mob. So this is the one we're coming in. I think I only saw one guy with an actual pitchfork in this one. Uh, for the most part, they just have those torches because they're doing the hunt at night. Now they've learned that little Maria has been killed. So, which is powerful in itself. When we see that we see the monster throw Maria into the river to see if she floats, or to watch her float, and she doesn't. Uh, which is apparently kind of frightening for the actress, because Marilyn Harris, at the time of filming, had had a grand total of two swimming lessons, 
when they threw her into a freezing cold river with all of her clothes. So they had a, a difficult time getting that shot done. And but, what probably would, would have made it even worse is, um, we work with her, put a little bit of downer on it, is after putting all that work into the scene, in a lot of portions of the country, the conclusion of that scene, where the monster throws Maria into the river, on, got cut. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was actually cut in the original theatrical release and wasn't restored until several years later. It's... Yeah, U.S. audiences didn't see that scene until home video releases. It was never on the theatrical releases in the U.S. Yeah. The film as a whole, around the time, but I was looking over IMDb stuff and the commentary with the movie, there was a fair amount of controversy with this movie at the time in terms of local film boards having scenes cut, like, for example, Dr. Frankenstein's line, Now I know what it feels like to be God. Um, uh-huh. That being cut... Um, or having, or just covering it up with a th- loud thunderclap, um, cutting the, you know, cutting Maria being thrown into the water. Um, heck, the film itself got banned in Kansas. Uh, outright. So, yeah, this is this is actually one of the films that was instrumental in forming the Motion Picture Association of America as it is today. A lot of that started with the gangster films in the 1920s. So when you had the Roaring Twenties, cu- coupled with Prohibition, and you had a lot of movies about gangsters that seemed to glorify them, well, that became the bugaboo, just as you know, violent video games have been lately. It was the gangster movies that were blamed for the evils of the day's youth in the late 20s and early 30s. And they were just starting to put together a rating system. Uh, America almost went with the the same sort of idea that the Britain or that British system eventually went with, which was in or out, it's approved or it's not approved, and there were no grades of ratings. And it was actually films like this one where you could say, no, there is genuine artistic merit here, and older audiences understand what's going on and what the message is, and who the real monsters in this film are. You know, a lot of these universal horror movies that were done intelligently, or Dracula, which was based on a classic and popular novel. You know, a lot of these, uh, Invisible Man was another one that was taken from a very intellectual and respected novel. They were able to convince the MPAA when it formed, not just to have the in or out system, but to have the graduated system. So that's where you got your G, your PG, and then at the time it skipped directly to R. So there was no X, there was no NC-17, there was no PG-13. Those came later. But they did have G, PG, and R at the time. Like I said, that board formed largely because of this and other films of the era. So even if you're not a horror fan, that's one thing you can't... You, you cannot claim that this hasn't been influential, not just in the way people make movies, but in the way the movie industry runs today. How many movies have we seen that have been edited to get a particular rating? Because they know the stricter the rating, the more restricted your audience is, the lower your odds of bringing in a return on this investment. Definitely. And it's kind of basically kind of stayed that way until kind of into the 80s when we'd see where we start seeing situations where we had movies that had high ratings for older audiences, 
but which were also kind of marketed for younger audiences as well. We'll probably talk about that a bit more when we get around to RoboCop. Yeah, there's that when we get into the fantasy films as well, because that's where you have um, Lyndon Jones and the Temple of Doom is the movie that inspired the PG-13 rating. Because that's when they're sitting there going, yeah, this is okay for some kids, but not all of them. Teenagers probably okay with it. A lot of six-year-olds wouldn't, and they were whiffling and waffling. And Spielberg, backed by Paramount, was the one who went to them and said, so why can't you approve it for teenagers and not young kids? So they invented the PG-13 rating for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It wasn't the first movie released with that rating because it, the post-production cycle meant, you know, they they invented the rating for Temple of Doom, rated it first, then rated other movies that managed to come out first because the cycle was shorter. But, yeah, that's a big part of it. And there's also the, the X and NC-17 ratings that came through starting in the 60s. Yeah, it did have an impact on the way movies were viewed by audiences and by parents. This is the first time where they were saying it may not be appropriate for everyone. And the movie actually comes right out and, and says it. The first scene here is one of the actors, uh, namely Edward Van Sloan, coming out as Dr. Waldman, saying, you know, Carl Arnold figures we should give you a warning. This may not be appropriate for everyone. It may shock you. It may even horrify you. So if you're a little sensitive, well, you were warned. Carl Emmel being the founder of Universal Studios. And this uh, itself would also lead into another thing with how films are marketed later, particularly in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, with stuff like requiring audiences to sign a waiver in case you get scared so much you have a heart attack, um, and playing up this relatively, by, all, by comparison, mundane disclaimer into part of the spectacle of the marketing. All the way up to, like, when we get into the straight-up grindhouse era with, like, Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave with movies taglines like, just keep repeating to yourself it's only a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a big part of it. And this was a big part of the formation of Universal. Uh, a lot of people don't realize when Universal Pictures formed, they were actually educational films. That was their goal, was to produce educational films for rural environments to teach them what big city life is like, to teach them how to run the farm so that their parents could go run the farm while the you know kids could go to some movie house and learn the tasks without getting in the parents' way. But they were finding it hard to make ends meet that way. So then they started with the film adaptations beginning with Hunchback of Notre Dame with Lancini Jr., to do the, the big tentpole spectacles to bring money in. And came the 30s with the Great Depression when farming was dying and there was no way they could do it, that's when they made the transition to a full-bore studio. And they leaned heavily on their horror roots because that was their strength, that's what they knew, and that's what they were known for. Right? Just as these days, you see the Disney brand in the movie? You can assume it's age-appropriate for most audiences. Yeah, so it wasn't until Pirates of the Caribbean, after they'd folded in Hollywood Pictures and Touchstone, that Disney really started to branch out. Before that, the Disney brand was known for the kids' movies. Hollywood would have been more appropriate, classically, for 
Pirates of the Caribbean films, just as it was used for The Rock and Con Air and those action films. Whereas Touchstone was more Mr. Holland's opus and the other feel good, but adult oriented dramas. You know, again, not age inappropriate, but just not expected to entertain the young kids. Universal has obviously branched out into others, but they still kept their horror roots. I mean, they made the first blockbuster ever with Jaws. And that definitely has strong horror roots. Spielberg will tell you it comes right back to what their universe was doing in the 30s, and that's what inspired Jaws in the way he made Jaws. Definitely. And we'll also de- we will definitely be coming about more and more with the Universal films in the future with stuff just with the science fiction tournament, the right with fantasy, with stuff like a Jurassic Park. And I think, did Universal do Andromeda Strain? I don't recall. Um, company credits. Yep, Universal. Universal did the Andromeda. Did the nineteen seventy one the Andromeda Strain? Yep. Yeah, they were the distributors behind it. Yeah, that's. They've always been sort of a niche. Because um, while everyone else sort of grew out of the postcards or you know, MGM and United Artists grew literally out of the artists who were sick and tired of just getting paid flat salaries at the time. That's something a lot of people don't realize. I mean, if you go back to the start of United Artists, that was Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, and a couple of their contemporaries who banded together because they could see the studios were making money in hand over fist but they were just contract workers. And if you were actors or writers or directors, you got paid annual salaries by the studios, and then you made the movies that the studios wanted you to make, unless you were one of the rare exceptions that had enough pull to go to the studio and say, hey, I want to make this. Even then, a lot of the time, it would be uh, sort of a negotiation. So, you know, Frank Capra came forward and said, I want to make Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. They said, fine, but you're going to direct this one for us because we need a director for it and handed him arsenic and old lace, which he didn't actually want to do. Although it's also in the Internet Movie Database top 250 films. Right now it's number 249. And the movie doesn't actually have Boris Karloff, but Boris Karloff, his first work on Broadway was in that movie playing Jonathan Brewster, which is a part written for him. That was the spoof of the horror genre that started in the on stage in the late 30s on film that came out in 1944, although it was filmed in 41. The contract said they had to hold it until the Broadway run was finished. But there was supposed to be a very scary character whose plastic surgeon had made him up to look like Boris Karloff. So, for the play, they got Boris Karloff. And, and he came in and Play the guy who was supposed to look like him. But yeah, it's, Boris Karloff is known for his horror. He did not just Frankenstein, he was the mummy, a lot of that, but I guess Boris Karloff off screen was one of the kindest and gentlest men you could ever meet. Loved kids. They were concerned about how the actress playing little Maria would react to him when she saw him in full makeup for the first time. She saw him in full makeup for the first time when they were still on set and they hadn't driven out to the location shooting. 
she asked Boris Karloff if, if she could ride with him. Because it's just, they responded to him, he responded to kids. It was great. That's why he did the voice of the Grinch and how the Grinch stole Christmas and a bunch of other voiceover work in animated series. Because he, he just loved kids, so he chose to entertain them any chance he could get. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard similar things about um, with, with actors who tend to be very large people who also tend to be fearsome characters tend to kind of be like like that. Um, well, I'll probably just kind of being ahead of whenever we do the fantasy tournament and presumably we talk about Princess Bride. Andre the Giant. Um, part of the movie, his reputation was as not just a pro wrestler, but a bad guy pro wrestler. The biggest, baddest bad guy in all the pro wrestling. Um, his whole, I mean, his gimmick was getting in um, 30 man battle, battle royals and winning. Um, and But he was the nicest, by all accounts, the nicest guy anyone could ever hope to meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's true of a lot of the Universal Horror cast. And that's largely why they were able to keep so many of them together and keep them going. Is because they had a lot of fun together when they weren't filming. So, Boris Karloff, I mean, two best friends in real life were Peter Lorre and Vincent Price. They hung out all the time. In fact, when Bela Lugosi passed away and asked to be buried in his full Dracula costume, because he recognized that was his biggest role, Peter Lorre and Vincent Price went to the casket together, and it was Peter Lorre who leaned over to Vincent Price and said, do you think we should put a stake through his heart, just to be sure? (laughs) When Vincent Price was cast as Egghead on the 1966 Batman series. He was the one, as soon as they finished shooting, he turned around and saw all these eggs behind him. He started a food fight. (laughs) (laughs) These guys just, they like to have a good time, and that, that goes into the work when they were happy coming to work. In spite of all this, in spite of the hardships, Boris Karloff had serious back problems for his entire life after this because James Whale wanted to be able to shoot close enough that you could see it was the monster and Henry Frankenstein when the monster's carrying him around. So he actually had Boris Karloff carrying uh, Colin Clive up this hill in spite of all the extra padding Karloff was wearing, in spite of his back brace, in spite of his 13-pound shoes... He's holding all of this and Colin Clive up the hill. Apparently, it essentially destroyed his back. He was in back pain for the rest of his life, which is why some of the later roles he was in, other directors rewrote scripts to put him in a wheelchair because simply standing was so painful for him by the end of his life. Indeed. uh, In the film Curse of the Crimson Altar, which is, to my knowledge, the only time we have Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee on screen at the same time, um, and they have some pretty close, pretty good scenes together. Um, uh, Karloff actually is a good guy in that movie. He's playing a uh, crippled professor um, who's up against Christopher Lee's evil demonic cult. Yeah. yeah he would. It would have been a rare chance for him to play the good guy. I mean, it's... He was an actor, but he was a working actor. He wouldn't turn down a lot of roles. But he, like most actors, he still wanted some variety in the roles he got. 
he was able to achieve that by the end of his career because it got to the point where you know when he hadn't necessarily grown up with the mummy and Frankenstein and he'd spent a lot of time on Broadway so other actors still respected him and studios would still cast him the audience was looking at him with fresh eyes which is how he got a little more diverse in terms of his acting portfolio by the end of his career but yeah it was was one of the classic films it's got some of the classic dialogue I mean that It's Alive was voted number 49 in the American Film Institute's top 100 quotes of all time that's not just sci-fi not just horror not just fantasy that's every film ever made in the United States of America after the first hundred years they made all sorts of top hundred lists for their 100 celebration and that quote was about halfway up the list it's just in terms of its influence it's really hard to overstate how influential this film has become in terms of watching it today as I said some of the exterior sets are clearly sets that were shot on interiors they sadly do not hold up as well as some of the other ones I mean it's just there's only so much you can do inside a large room to make it look like you're standing outside and when they tried having a lot more details in the background that we saw in later films and when they were rushed so that the canvas that they put up ended up creased a thing show that goes in the soundtrack show so there are aspects of it that don't age well but you could take the same script you could pick the same angles the same shots and make an excellent movie today this by and large does hold up doesn't hold up quite so much as horror if you're used to modern horror which is I think more about the shock and surprise and gore than actually building up a psychological suspense over time but by and large it still works at least in my opinion how about you Alex? I think it definitely holds up very well it, I wouldn't call it scary but it is engrossing and enthralling and it's definitely the kind of movie where if I still had cable and I turn the TV on and that movie's on I'll I'll stop doing what I'm doing and watch it. Oh, yeah, I think I've just bought every edition that's ever come out on, on digital discs. I bought the Universal Horror Legacy Collection, which I'm still hanging on to because it's got all the sequels. I picked up the 75th Anniversary Edition, and earlier this week, at least at the time of recording, they released it on Blu-ray, and I picked that up, and that's what I watched, and this Blu-ray is extremely well done. It's very easy to recommend if you have any interest in it. Not only does it have a very clean and very clear uh, image and sound translation and restoration of the original film, it has two separate commentary tracks by two different film historians. It has a 95-minute documentary on Universal Horror Films. It's got a 45-minute documentary on the making of this one film, as well as a number of bonus features and monster tracks and trailers for the entire Frankenstein franchise I mean this is one of the big ones Frankenstein and Dracula were really the first two film franchises and I'd actually have to dig into it to see which one they decided to franchise first 
because the, the timelines in terms of releases on the sequels to both of them are close enough together that I wouldn't know which one went into production first and which decision was made first. Uh, the Frankenstein series, we'll, we'll get to this in another podcast, but it's also in the few franchises where you can make a strong case for the sequel being better than the original in the case of Bride of Frankenstein. Definitely agree. And we'll be talking about a few other franchises where the sequel is definitely better than the original later on as well. <clears throat> Star Wars. <clears throat> anyway, these are all coming up in the tournament. Uh, speaking of the tournament, we should mention Frankenstein obviously did make it through round one to be placed in that final 128. It made it through round two when it won out against Slaughterhouse 5. In round three, it lost to Galaxy Quest, which is, it's a loss I can respect, even though, quite frankly, I voted for Frankenstein in that bracket. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a fair loss, all things considered. Um... Yeah, it wasn't even a tremendous loss. The, the votes came out 47% for Galaxy Quest, 39% for Frankenstein, and then 14% undecided. So, the, an 8% gap, it's, I mean, it is definitely a win for Galaxy Quest, there's no question, but some of these votes were like 90-some percent film A and 2 or 3% film B. It's not the landslide that some others have been. Definitely. Um, I mean, particularly compared to the uh, loss that the 2001 anime version of Metropolis had to Alien, which is a straight-up shutout, um, that is... It, it's, a, it's a good... It's, it's a good, good run. It's definitely one of the closer ma- closer matches of that round. Not the closest, but definitely one of the closer ones. Yeah, even that's about all I had to say for Frankenstein, aside from the fact that I would highly recommend checking it out, in spite of the fact that certain elements are dated. Don't let the black and white turn you off. There's some people I know who don't want to watch black and white movies. This particular movie, the way it was shot, the way the sets were constructed, the way it was lit, I cannot imagine that filming it in color or colorizing it afterwards would be anywhere near as effective as the black-and-white version. So really track it down, check it out as is. I agree. This is a movie that, if you have a movie bucket list of movies to watch bef- um, before you die, this should be on it. It is such an iconic work of cinema um, that it's it's definitely worth watching. Um Actually, I mentioned I I did mention earlier when when I saw Frankenstein for the first time. I watched it when I was in high school. Um, after my high school English teacher uh, in class, as our proper assigned reading, had Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the book, as our reading in class, and I read it and read the book and watched the movie and wrote a paper com- uh, comparing the two. And I don't suppose you mind if I give a shout out to my high school English senior English teacher. Go for it. Uh, I just want to thank Miss. Uh, this is Laura West at Wilsonville High School in Wilsonville, Oregon. I doubt she's listening to this, but if you are, thank you. Yeah. It was great. We actually studied this in my uh, English 101 class. It was the first time I studied it in class. I bought my first copy of the novel in junior high, but by the time I got to university, uh, actually in the class of Dr. Falkenstein, who deliberately uh, assigned Frankenstein because he figured he'd heard every Frankenstein joke that there could be, based on his last name. If you could come up with one he hasn't heard, he would give you bonus marks, which nobody got through the entire semester, although some people tried. <laughs> it's, he did a nice job with that, and I will never forget the day that we got our essays back marked when he 
walked in. The only time I've seen him steaming mad, slammed those essays down on the podium at the front and said, there were no torches and pitchforks in the book. <laughs> you know who you are, you got zero. <laughs> and there's about three or four of my classmates who went, oh, crap. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. As is, I probably would have more made a joke related to the Castle Falkenstein role, tabletop role-playing game myself. He probably wouldn't have heard that one. He also might no. have thought it. No. But no, that's, that was also 1999. So the IMDb was out there. Or sorry, 95. So the IMDb was out there. We all had internet access, but it was all still dial-up, so a lot of people weren't using it. I did have one classmate who watched the Kenneth Branagh version of Frankenstein, which had just come out on home video at that point, and then researched the differences between the movie and the book and wrote his essay around them. So he's the one guy I know of who managed to get away with not actually watching the movie, but yeah, a lot of the people who tried it, they, when they tried it with the 1931 film, they got nailed to the wall. So, I did study it later in the uh, Comparative Literature 342 Introduction to Science Fiction course as well. Nice. Yeah. But no, it's, there's a lot here. The, the movie version that we're discussing now is not as cerebral as Mary Shelley's novel. So, it's not as easy to study aside from doing so in contrast. If you're doing, you know, late high school or university level studies, at least in terms of the narrative and the plot. But this is something you could bring into a film studies class in terms of a pivotal point in the way films are made. Between Frankenstein and Dracula being made almost concurrently at the Universal Studios in 1931, we saw a major shift in filmmaking in that year. Uh, M coming out of Germany in that year probably helped as well, which is Peter Lorre's first starring role. It's probably not going to be in any of these tournaments because it's not science fiction or fantasy, but it is my all-time favorite movie, so track that one down too for completely different reasons. There's so much of filmmaking that came out of these three films in 1931. It is a massive turning point in in the film history. Definitely. Anyway, so I think that wraps up pretty much all I have to say about Frankenstein. So join us again next week when we discuss Life Force. Thank you for listening. Yep.